many of the teachings of Jesus and his prophets and apostles, ask us to live contrary both to human nature and to social convention. Even a cursory reading of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5-7 through illustrates this truth sufficiently. And yet, the Christian scriptures seem insistent that the life God has called us to live, as unnatural and countercultural as it may be, is possible. Now, of course, the Bible does not present the way of Jesus as a result of some sort of an increase in human willpower or tenacity, nor is it that godliness is attainable because some society somewhere will decide to require Christian ethics of all of its citizens by force of law and convention. The life Jesus has called his disciples to embody is possible because God, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, is at work in us. However, the Holy Spirit of God is not at work simply making followers of Jesus capable of doing anything whatsoever to which we put our minds. The Holy Spirit of God is at work to produce a very particular type of human being, and I would suggest that the only way that we will see evidence of the Spirit's work in us is by setting our hearts on the things that God values and on a way of living that God has commended to us in Jesus. If you have access to a Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. I'm going to begin reading again this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. In previous discussions, we explored Peter's confession to the elect ones who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Today, we will explore the third of Peter's explications of election to the elect ones who have been chosen for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. Why has God intervened in human history? Why has God elected and chosen anybody for anything? We've already encountered the question of who. Who has been elected? Who has been chosen by God? All nations on earth have been chosen by the foreknowledge, even by the foreordination of God. We've also already encountered the how. How has God elected all nations? God has elected people from all nations through the work of the Holy Spirit of God, setting apart individuals from every nation on earth, calling them to the atoning work of Jesus and marking them as belonging to God. But why has God elected and for what? This is Peter's response. To the elect ones who have been chosen for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. Now you probably noticed that I've changed some wording there. The New International Version reads, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Ultimately, that may be what Peter's words imply, but to translate them so definitively in this way is problematic in the Greek. A more sustainable translation of Peter's actual language is the one I've provided. Chosen for, elect for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. Why has God elected and for what? God has elected for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. The Greek doesn't actually seem to say for obedience to Jesus specifically. God's election is for obedience generally, probably implying obedience to God. Why did God determine beforehand 
to elect all nations on earth. Why has the Holy Spirit of God gone out into all the world, sanctifying humans out of every nation and people group on earth? For obedience. For obedience. This is the purpose of God, which Peter has placed before us first. Long ago, when God first created humanity, he gave our first parents a command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it you will most certainly die. But humanity did not submit to God's instruction. We took it somehow as one opinion among several, rather than the very word of life itself. We heard God's instruction, then we listened to the serpent's reasoning, and we looked to our own desires. From there we decided how to proceed, and with our actions we determined that God's word was not to be trusted, was not to be heeded, was not to be obeyed. And the fact that our first parents did not in fact die in any apparent way the moment they ate of that fruit seemed to validate both their decision and God's falseness, and we've exalted our opinions above his advices ever since. But what humanity did not realize and in Jesus what God has revealed, is that there is no life apart from God. God is the source of all life, and to walk away from God is to cut oneself off from that which sustains us. Now, God did not cut humanity off from his life-sustaining power instantaneously, and we now know that that decision was an act of grace on God's part. So humanity has continued from that day to this, but we've been moving toward what we were without God. Humanity is on a road toward corruption, and dying, and death, and ultimately to the nothingness from whence we came. As the scriptures say, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But as God elected from time eternal to speak life into nothingness, and to bring this universe into being, so from the very beginning God elected to choose those who would turn from the faithlessness of our first parents and place our faith in God for recreation, for reanimation, for the life that our first parents refused, for a life of obedience to God. God has elected and chosen by specific and ancient design those sanctified by the Spirit for a life of trust in God which expresses itself in faithfulness to God. Now, I don't believe that this implies that God is intending to present humanity with a collection of edicts and laws that he will then make us capable of obeying perfectly. Obedience is what it looks like, but I think the issue of obedience and disobedience in the scriptures, particularly as the teachings of the New Testament have been rooted in those of the first, is fundamentally an issue of trust, a question of faith. Obedience doesn't have to be rooted in trust or faith. Obedience can be rooted, for instance, in fear. I mean, I don't have to trust or have faith in our government to obey it. I could distrust the government completely, but still obey out of fear of punishment. In fact, I would argue that the obedience required of Israel was more of this sort. The covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus provided blessings and curses as motivations for obedience. Some even in the Christian church have used the concepts of hell and heaven in similar ways. However, it seems to me that God's purpose and election is to create a type of human being who trusts God, who has faith in God, a type of human being that obeys not out of fear or simply obeisance, 
but out of the sure confidence that the God who commands can and must be trusted. When such people encounter a command of God, they obey because they trust the word of God more than they trust any other word, even though spoken by their own innermost desires. Such people, I believe, are the purpose of God's election, the purpose of Jesus' atoning death by which the Spirit of God sanctifies humanity. And it is these, those who trust God completely, who will be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And that promise is more significant, perhaps, than it might first appear, because I think Peter was confessing that those who embody trust or faith in God are those who will ultimately be saved. The New Testament authors seem to have used the image of blood sprinkling as referring to events that have been recorded in Exodus chapter 24. So this is Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. This remains the New International Version. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Notice that in this passage, the sprinkling of the blood which sanctified the people and placed them under the covenant of Sinai came after their confessions of obedience to God and to his teachings. Obedience, or at least the commitment to obey, came before sprinkling in Peter's confession as well. The blessings and curses of the old covenant of Sinai came on those who agreed to obey God. And according to Peter, the blessings and curses of the new covenant of Jesus will come on those who evidence faith, trust, expressed as obedience to God. It seems to me that Peter's confession at the very beginning of his letter to these believers must have been a double-edged sword. For those who had trusted God by committing themselves to Jesus and who were facing persecution because of their faithful obedience to him as they had been instructed by Jesus and his prophets and apostles, to those folks these must have been encouraging words. God had elected and chosen them long ago and had sanctified them by his spirit at the current time, and that electing work of God was being evidenced in the trust they had placed in God by obeying him. However, for others in these churches, perhaps who were losing their faith or their trust in God because of their suffering, these might have been frightful words. If the evidence of God's election and sanctification was faithful obedience to God, obedience rooted in trust in the word of God above all other words, and they were doubting the teachings of the prophets and apostles of Jesus, then were they of the elect? 
if they ceased to trust God by obeying them, then would they be sprinkled with Jesus' blood? The purpose of God's election is for obedience to God out of faith and trust, and the sprinkling of Jesus' blood as the sign and seal of the new covenant. And each of us must ask ourselves, Am I of the elect? Have I been chosen by God? In my view, all of us should be able to say yes, but some of us must say no. In Jesus, God has elected all nations on earth, chosen by God's specific design and knowledge. However, that election will not result in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And it is evidenced, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, by the trust God's people place in Him, by intending to heed His word above all other words. Some doubt God's truthfulness. Others doubt the truthfulness of those who claim to have spoken on His behalf, the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus. Doubt alone is not necessarily evidence that a person is not of the people of God. Doubt which still ultimately obeys out of a desire to trust is of God. But doubt which justifies rebellion against God is not. Where does God's word, as spoken through his prophets and apostles, rank in your or in my decision-making process? Is it simply one voice among many, or is it the voice to which all others are subordinate? The Spirit-sanctifying work labors toward the latter, and this is the condition of the sprinkling of Jesus' blood on us. Not perfect obedience, but trust in God. Faith in God and in God's ability to communicate His word through His elect messengers. This trust is evidenced in a desire to obey. This trust is absent where our intention is to disobey. We can accomplish many things as people through diligence and will. But a life that trusts God more than natural instinct or social convention or human wisdom or even common sense, that life is not within the grasp of our wills. It's a life that can only be born of the will of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the willing submission of the human will in trust and faith in God. Only by willing what God wills, Will we see real transformation occur in us and through us? Are you, am I, willing to obey? Are we willing to walk in trust? Are we willing to submit? Are we willing to trust this word above all other words? Real freedom, real transformation, the real sprinkling of the blood of Jesus lies on the other side of that willingness. None of us will ever experience God's purpose and election if we will not submit to God's work and to God's will. And his will is that you and I trust him and his elected messengers. This is in part why Peter began this epistle with the words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. May those who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.